Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Hello, Fintech Beat listeners. I'm Amaya Garrity, partner at QED Investors, and back today to turn the tables and interview one of the most important voices in the fintech landscape. Since 2009, Karen Webster has been the CEO and Editor-in-Chief of Payments, the leading fintech content platform. Karen and I have spent a bunch of time together, often with her interviewing me or talking about the big questions in fintech. But today, I want to ask Karen about her career. By the time she started Payments.com, Karen had already been a managing director at PwC and had founded her own management consulting company focused on innovation. Then, in 2009, when the word fintech had barely registered in the public consciousness, she founded Payments. To give our listeners a sense of the moment, the press release announcing the launch identified with great fanfare a book written by her colleagues called, quote, Paying with Plastic. On the other hand, Karen was way ahead of her time in taking all the vowels out of her company name. Let's just say we've come a long way. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Amias, and thanks for reminding me about the uh, the press release that I was hoping you'd never find. Yeah. Well, now that I've tried to embarrass you with old press releases, let's talk about that founding moment. Uh, how did you come to the re- realization that payments could succeed? And um, many of our listeners don't realize this, but uh, this is a partnership that you did with Berkshire Hathaway. So how did you make that come together? So you mentioned that um, that I also founded a consulting firm after I left uh, P- PwC. So it was it was as part of the consulting firm that um, that I that I had that we were hired by BusinessWire, which was a Berkshire Hathaway company in two thousand and eight. My my particular area of expertise is in the design and scaling of platform based businesses, which are these incredibly complicated entities to scale get off the ground and effectively run profitably, but they only look easy. They're, they're obviously very, very hard to do. Um, at the time, the CEO of Business Wire read a book that we had published by Harvard Business School Press called Catalyst Code that talked about how to design a successful platform. She had a particular set of business problems she wanted to solve. One of those problems we thought could be solved by creating a place on the web, now this is in 2008, a place on the web where businesses could talk to each other about the things that they were doing to innovate their businesses. At the time, that was largely done on pretty bad looking websites that companies maintained themselves or press releases. So we thought, why not really take a page out of Digital Innovations Playbook and do something very different? That is what we did. We launched in 2009. It took us about six months to to actually get everything together. We founded a company, a joint venture. We each put money into the joint venture to get it off the ground. I remember specifically the day that we launched, October the 20th, 2009. I gathered 50 people that I knew in the payments business. We decided to focus on payments because 
that was an area I had an active consulting practice in. I knew people and I thought I could get them to kind of be persuaded to be readers, to be sponsors and to otherwise be part of the platform. Gathered them together. Um, Warren Buffett gave us a few minutes of his time by saying, this is this is a pretty cool thing. I'm a newspaper guy, but this is a pretty good thing. Why don't you all give it a look and um, and and participate and support the uh, the venture? And off we went. Um, it was def- definitely a leap of faith. Um, that day, we had zero unique visitors. We had you know, we had we had no newsletters. Site, Karen. <laughs> well, I guess my you know my mother, me. I mean, I guess those, those kind of maybe like like a handful. But it was funny. But this is something that is is different. And what was different about it was was the business model. And so it was for in for, for many people a leap of faith in terms of how this business was going to survive, scale, and really become a force in the media uh, environment. At the time, again, you have to go back to 2009 and, and what the form of communication was between businesses then. It was trade publications that were put in the mail. It was, as I said, you know, websites that looked pretty, pretty bad, pretty marketing-esque. They used all their vowels, things like that. All their vowels. I mean, imagine. But, um, but, but, but being being different and thinking about a different business model, not advertising based, because a lot of free content on the web diluted the value of advertising. You had to be a really big player to make enough money to support a content operation. We were not that, and I didn't aspire to be an advertising-based platform because I wanted people to get to the content without the interference of pop-ups and different kinds of things that interfered with their their ability to consume content. Nor did I want to be a subscription model because, again, you have to be at scale, and you have to actually have something that was really different for people to want to subscribe to. And We were very early days doing something very different, focused on innovation and payments, and so we needed to think about a different way of monetizing um, our business. And the way that we did it was free to subscribe, free, free to readers. So people could come to the site, consume, consume content, download reports and studies. But those who worked with us in partnership to develop studies, to develop trackers that track trends, um, that wanted to put together thought leadership campaigns, paid for that. And that was, um, that was how we started the business. That's the business model. It's really interesting when you think about, you know, 2005 to 2008 was sort of like the first wave of user-generated content. Content. Yep. But it was, you know, it was all consumer. It was just whoever wants to throw a video online, and and that this insight that that you're communicating, which I had never realized, that a a press release is a form of user-generated content. Yes, it is. But it was a, a pretty old and antiquated form. And so there was an opportunity to apply modern tools and platform-based thinking to this question of B2B user-based content. It's a, it's a buzzier pitch than I probably realized as, as a reader of payments. It's a, it's, it was a buzzier pitch. And, and you know, think about though where payments was in 2009. So we wanted to focus on innovation. We were probably, I don't know, the fifth or sixth entrant into the space. There were a lot of well-established competitors who covered the space and it was sort of boring to cover the space. It was new card, interest rates, you know, rewards. We wanted to cover the excitement, the idea that 
mobile and data and the cloud was going to reinvent how consumers engaged with businesses, how they would engage with connected devices like the smartphone and apps, and how that was going to completely reinvent the experience for payments. Again, a business that that I knew very well. And in order for any media platform or data platform to, to get scale, you have to have a lot of news, a lot of things going on. And I, I really thought that there'd be a ton of things to, to focus on and talk about. And I was right. In fact, you know, one of our first interviews was with, was with Jack Dorsey. And he talked about, you know, his vision for reinventing payments. And at the time, I mean, again, this was back in 2009, he always talked about his idea of creating a network, a network of small businesses and consumers who would who would become part of a platform where the relationship between those consumers and those businesses could be monetized in different ways. And um, it, I think it probably took him a little bit longer than he originally thought to do that, but that is in fact what he built. Yeah, that that is amazing. And so um, it's, when you think about fintech today versus fin, fintech in 2009, it, it is a, a, a bracing and pretty exciting reminder that, um, you know, Jack Dorsey was a you know, pretty successful serial entrepreneur, but, but he was starting out a business with uncertain prospects, just like, you know, hundreds and thousands of people do every day today. And, and so 13 years later, Jack Dorsey is a, you know, a, a pretty big name in fintech, but then he was just a guy with a with a vision about how you could create a new payments network. The the, the just a guy who you know people sort of said you know Jack Dorsey out of what does he know what does he know what does he know about payments? We kind of knew a lot about payments because what he what he recognized was consumers have cards. They have cards in their wallets. And so he didn't invent a new thing for people to use to pay. He just invented a thing that made it easier for people with the cards in their wallets to pay the businesses that wanted to accept electronic payments. And that, I think, you know, is, is a really important element of, in, of, of the innovation. He created a platform over time by leveraging things that people already had. And I think you know, one of the dynamics, of course, that's tricky for platform-based businesses is, is getting both sides on board and who do you need first in order to get the other side to play along. Well, he had, you know, millions of consumers in the U.S. that had cards in their, um, you know, in their wallets already. And that was what he was able to leverage to get his business off the ground. Yeah, there were all these plastic things just lying around plastic. waiting to be... Paying with plastic. See, it, was all, it all comes yeah, exactly. back to that. Just, just waiting to be used. I mean... It is, uh, it, it is funny. And now, you know, just to pull it full circle on Twitter, um, a lot of people are saying Twitter should be asking businesses to pay for all their followers. So maybe they should take a page out of the paper. <laughs> they, can they, they can borrow your business model. They can user generate some content with and, and have that be the business model instead of, uh, instead of bots. They can, um, they can, give me a call. I can give them some tips. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, it's also, I think, uh, to reflect a little bit about, you know, your your point that um, you know, Square didn't invent merchant acquiring. Mm -mm. What they did is they they invented some pretty cool hardware mm -hmm. that allowed merchant acquiring to take place 
and and payment to take place in places that it couldn't, right? And um, I think underappreciated that the original Square dongle had a pretty neat technical insight underneath it, which is it communicated um, the barcode over audio files, mm-hmm. right? That's why it could go into your iPhone headphone jack. So that's a like th- there's some there's some pretty neat things that were happening underneath that. Um, you know, we at QED we were uh, early investors in Braintree, which yep. also was one yep. of the, the merchant acquirers la- later bought by PayPal. Um, but even as investors in Braintree, one of the interesting things a decade later is, if we're being honest, we didn't realize how powerful the model was. Yeah. Right. We we were in the zone. We were investing. We had an investment in a great company. Um, but even we thought of it as just merchant, just digital merchant yeah. acquiring. We yeah. didn't necessarily realize just how powerful, um, you know, Stripe and, and Square and and PayPal and uh, after Braintree could become. So so it's interesting. Even the people who were excited about it didn't necessarily have um, the ability to see just how far we would come. Well, I mean, but think about t- again back to two thousand and nine and two thousand and ten eleven when you know Stripe launched, it was still all, all new. I mean, the, so the iPhone in 2009 was two years old. The App Store was a year old. I mean, people were just getting, getting used to you know, what the power of having this device in their hands that could access apps could, could do for them. And, and you had the foresight for these companies to think about, well, we think that this is a really exciting opportunity to, to have other developers create really cool applications that consumers with these devices will want to download and use and be able to pay with and you know do things in a, in a different way than they would strictly in the physical world but to bring the digital and physical world together in a way that clearly has evolved um, a lot more significantly since then but but that was really the you know, the, the insight that, that that generation of innovator had, you know, back to the, the, the square thing, they're, they're, they also had a different business model. So they took on the risk, you know, they took on the risk mm-hmm. of underwriting these merchants. And that was also an interesting business model dynamic. You know, I, I think innovation around business models is so powerful. If, if done well, it really is a very um, significant, lasting piece of competitive advantage that that innovators, I think, sometimes underestimate. You know, they think the technology is the real competitive advantage. I think, you know, business model and the design of really important, clever business models can be extremely sustainable. Yeah, I love that the idea that um, it's not just that you made something automated or you put technology in place. It's that you have to marry the business yep. model with the right technology. And it's just like your point about marrying the physical and the digital, mm-hmm. right? We, we are still human beings. Yeah. You know, we're still cells walking around <laughs> in the physical world. We're not, we're not quite to the metaverse yet. Um, and so finding clever ways to make the physical and the digital um, connect is, is still pretty central to, to what makes businesses succeed. Yep. Um, so we're, we're right now kind of, in a down fintech market, right? The I, the IPOs um, and and a lot of these are still great companies, but but markets have have decided that they're less excited than they were um, some time ago. So that's where we are right now. A lot of people are still you know reeling this late in 2022 to understand the 
the paradigm shift between 2021 and 2022. Um, but obviously, since 2009, you've seen, you know, more than one uh, flip on the road of, of fintech adoption. So how would you think about, how would you characterize the last 13 or 14 years in fintech? What are the cycles? What are the big things that have happened, um, both both good and bad, as as we've gone from from your start to to where we are today? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think good companies, no matter the cycle, um, will be funded. They will survive. They will become stronger companies um, as a, as a result. And I think we saw that in the class of two thousand and nine. You know, which which we're 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 a part of, but. But you know that wasn't exactly the best time to bring a to bring a new company into the you know into the market. You know here we are the Great Recession. You know everybody's trying to figure out what's next, um, and 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 you see so many companies that have gone on to be obviously very successful companies as a result of, of being born in those times. I think we'll see that um, as a result of what's what's going on right now as well. You know I, I think the cycles are really driven by. Um, by what some of these innovators have put in place to build to build upon. So you see a lot of the innovators in the 2009, 2011, 12, building the infrastructure that gave lots of other businesses the foundation upon which to innovate and build. I think of 2014 as kind of an interesting year um, for three for three reasons. Um, first of all, in 2014, you may remember this um, on April 1st. Amazon introduced the dash button. I mean, people actually thought it was an April Fool's joke that these little buttons that you were supposed to put on your washing machine or in your pantry, on your refrigerator, literally was were linked to your Amazon account. And you could push the button and order Tide, Bounty. You know, they had a whole portfolio of these devices that allowed you to basically order something when you were running low. And I thought they were the best thing. I bought a lot of dash buttons. I was a dash button uh, demo. You still have dash buttons in your house, Karen? I do not have dash buttons in my house, and I tried to cleverly disguise them because, you know, whatever. But, but if you think about that as a precursor to what Amazon has today, which is subscribe and save. You know, we do a lot of research on subscription commerce and the subscription economy, and ten percent of consumers use subscribe and save it's it's the most widely used retail subscription product in the US today you know amazon was able to get information about the the repetitiveness the frequency you know how consumers interact with brands and for brands it was a great advertisement i mean there was a billboard for tide on my washing machine i sold tide every day i bought tide when i needed to buy laundry detergent it was it was it was really interesting way of, of kind of understanding consumer behavior um, and getting brand visibility and connection as well. Also in 2014, um, in October, actually October the 20th, the day payments was founded, Apple Pay launched. The Apple Pay wallet um, launched with great fanfare. I remember the day um, vividly, you know, Tim Cook took the stage, talked about you know, the, the no longer the need to have a physical wallet because a digital wallet would in fact serve the, the purpose that consumers needed to, 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 to solve for when they were checking out in a store. And, and I think, you know, the lesson there was excitement, 
clearly a superior user experience. The problem was it didn't really solve a problem for the consumer. I mean, in the early days, it was the lack of acceptance and you you could only use it at certain places and only certain types of phones had the Apple Pay wallet associated with it. But over time, that became less of an impediment. But the problem isn't how consumers pay for something once they walk up to the terminal. It's all the stuff that goes before that. I have to stand in line. You know, I'm always behind the wrong person in line. So when I'm checking out, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pain. It doesn't solve the real checkout friction. And therefore, if you don't solve a big enough problem at scale, consumers use what they know works really well, which is the card, which remains you know, the biggest competitor at the point of sale for not just Apple Pay, but for, but for all, the, all, all the wallets. So I thought yeah, that I, I remember this, um, I was at Treasury at the time, and I remember having the conversation with the Loop Pay oh, team, yep, which yep, later yep. acquired by Samsung. And I got to tell you, I was so impressed by their technology yep, yep, because yep. they used um, a kind of electromagnetic pulse that that at least theoretically could have used could have been used in any credit card reader that had a had a swipe. So you didn't need the RFID, you didn't need the near field communication. And I was like, this is so cool. This is gonna completely eat Apple Pay's lunch. Well, you know, I don't I don't know what the adoptions are today, but I rem- it, it's a good example of what you're describing, Karen, because it it wasn't just the technology. Right. There was right. something else going on. So even though Loop Pay, to my mind, had a much cooler technology approach, it wasn't enough to dominate the market. And I think that's a you know interesting lesson. It, it isn't just about the technology or the largesse of a company that brings it to market. You have to solve a big enough problem, a friction, for enough consumers to get you know to get adoption and usage. So people will try it once, um, but will they try it twice? Will they make it a habit? And as obvious as that sounds, you know, quite often the problems that innovators focus on are either too small to be relevant or to scale, or they're, they're, they're just a problem that doesn't exist really for enough consumers or businesses to, uh, to, to get any traction. Yeah. And th- that kind of brings us, I think, to an interesting moment now which is we've gone from a time, I think in 2021, conviction was in, yeah. in surplus. Yep. You know, the, the amount of excitement there was about fintech last year, um, frankly, was just higher. And I think that's true for investors and, and frankly, true for founders as well. Uh, we met a lot of founders who were just starting off on their founder journey and they, you know, would say things like, well, you know, my background is in X and Y and Z. But I think I want to start a podcast. Uh, sorry, not a podcast, a fintech business. Um, in 2022, maybe it's a podcast. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, in 2021, the, the answer was, I think, I think the business is going to be fintech. And I think in 2022, we get less of that because there is a sense that fintech businesses can be hard. They take a lot of time to build. So in this moment where conviction is a little bit in short supply, Karen, what's getting what's getting you excited? I mean, you sit on top of the content flow. What's interesting? What's coming? So it's it's a really great point because I do sit on top of the content flow, and a lot of the content flow is really 
not very interesting. It's the sea of sameness. It's the sea of sameness. I mean, how can you possibly be differentiating if you're just a different flavor of, of uh, you know, pick your pick your buzzword, um, banking as a service, um, embedded finance, integrated payments. I mean, it's 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 really, you know, I I I don't know how else to describe it other than to say just because you're doing something or someone has partnered with you or, 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 or doesn't necessarily make it a breakthrough innovation. Um, the things that, that I think do get me excited are opportunities to really step back and say, we've observed a lot of new behavior over the last couple of years. We did a, a survey of CFOs recently, which we haven't released yet, um, where in 2000, uh, in 2020, almost 100% of CFOs adopted di- something digital to, to change the business. They had to, right? They, they adopted something digital to change their business. And what I really wanted to know was, well, what have they done since then? Have they, have, was that just a Band-Aid? Or was that something that they used to build digital experiences and to rethink the, 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 the office of, of finance within their organizations, big and, big and small? And the fascinating thing is 80% of them said that what they put to, put in place was so much better than what they had before. And they've, they've used it to build on. Very few of them have ripped off the Band-Aid and said, well, what I, what I put in was just a Band-Aid and I've taken it out and I'm not doing anything, anything else. They're building upon what they put in place. And I thought to myself, you know, inertia is such an obstacle for, for change and what I think we've observed is that people will change, they appreciate the change, and you need to build on that, that success, that mindset shift, and, and really help them further transform the business. And I think that what gets me excited are innovators that recognize and appreciate the mind, the mind shift, the transformation in the way that people now think about decisions and think about digital as a part of their business experience or their consumer experience and really and really amplify that for for a consumer or 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 a business and i think that's where the opportunity is to build successful businesses either um, a, a platform a feature of a platform or something um, or something that really um, integrates into um, a a software platform that people use today and could be uh, it strikes me that a good example of this, an area that I think there's a lot of excitement about, but the future is uncertain, is around real-time payments. For sure. Because I think what we can see clearly is that real-time payments are coming, mm-hmm. um, You know, sometimes faster, sometimes slower. Uh, we've got them in the US already uh, with the real-time payment system by the clearinghouse. It's coming with Fedwire, you know, FedNow. Um, Brazil has had huge success with PIX. Um, India with UPI. Uh, the EU has, has, has moved and modernized their payment system. So real-time payments are coming. But the interesting and I think unanswered question is what are real payments other than just faster payments? And what are the behaviors that will change because of real-time payments. And it's the behavior change that's going to lead to the big businesses, I think. 
I think you're right about that, but but they have to look at the use cases, right? So so you know, real time instant payments started making such an impact with um, paying gig you know gig workers. I mean, that was really how and, and P2P. I mean, those were the two real use cases for real time payments. I mean, operating over different rails, not the bank real time payment rails, but the idea of of instant and being able to get your money instantly. I think was really rooted was really rooted there. So if you think about the use cases where receiving money instantly matters for people, there are a lot of use cases where you see real-time payments being adopted, insurance claims payouts, things where, you know, getting the speed of money, uh, the speed of, of of delivery of money is is important. Increasingly though, consumers and businesses want the money in real time, not because they need it, but they want the certainty that they have it. I might need it. And now I want to know that I have it and I really want you to give it to me and I'll even pay for it. I'll even pay to get the money faster than you would ordinarily send it to me. And I think especially now, I want the certainty of the funds in my bank account. The value is the certainty, not the speed. Absolutely, positively. Yeah, that that's that's interesting. Um, one of the big concepts that you've been, you know, highlighting as an editor and as as payments and what next is um, this idea that the, the power comes from connection, and it goes to this idea of it's it's what what people do with the technology that matters. So you've introduced the concept of the connected economy. Mm-hmm. What what is the connected economy in your view? I love I love that question. <laughs> well, it's it's your it's just I'm asking you like <laughs> here's your big idea. Tell our listeners about it. So um, this big idea came out of um, being asked to deliver a a presentation in November of 2019 to the board of a publicly traded company. I won't tell you which one. And you know the question was, what do you think is going to happen in 2020? And I thought, well, that's a good question. Let me think about that and. I, I thought that 2020 was an interesting year, not just because it was 2020, but because for payments, it was it was really moving from a decade, you know, the 2010s, where it was dominated by connected devices, the smartphone and apps, that I thought would 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 really become connected devices and ecosystems in the decade of the 2020s. So I started to think about that. I started to think about well, what does that really mean for for, for payments, for the activities that consumers engage in, um, for businesses that may want to capitalize on this, this, this notion that it's not about where you sit as an industry, but it's what activities consumers do and how that crosses, you know, classical, you know, different industry definitions. So I came up with this idea of the connected economy. 10 categories that represent activities that people do. They bank, they shop, they have fun, they stay well, healthcare, they eat, which is eating at restaurants, they they shop at grocery stores, they communicate, they pay, they are paid, and, and so on. And within that, those categories are 37 activities that really represent the specific things in the, in the day-to-day that consumers do. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because if I am a grocery store, don't I want to think about how consumers um, budget food, whether they're budgeting food to shop at a grocery store or whether they're budgeting food to eat at a restaurant or an aggregator to bring home? 
it's really the food budget that I'm competing for, not other grocery stores necessarily, and so on. So that's the connected economy. The connected economy is this idea that consumers don't live in industries, they live in activities. And payments can be such a powerful connector between these activities and between these ecosystems that make it convenient for consumers to access those activities within an ecosystem that simplifies it, makes it more secure for consumers, makes it convenient, probably yeah. makes it more cost. Well, cost in venture, we always joke there's only two ways to make money, bundling and unbundling. So, <laughs> so th- th- maybe that's part of the connected economy, right? It's, it's these intersection points that, yep. that matter so much. Okay, so, so final question, Karen. In this dialogue, there's a real theme of as much as technology drives forward, we're still people, right? As you just said, people don't live in industries. And yet there's a lot of talk about the metaverse. So let's do some predictions. <laughs> How much time are regular people going to spend in the metaverse? Is, is the metaverse coming to take over our physical lives or, or will it always sort of stay in the realm of um, you know, entertainment and things that we do a little bit of our time in? So it's an interesting question because I think it depends on what you mean by the metaverse. So if the metaverse is the the complete intersection, you know, the invisible digital physical world, I think there's a lot of potential there for for commercial innovation, even for business innovation. I mean, I think that there's there's the virtual the- try on the the virtual the- try on, but but also if you think about healthcare and you know, mm-hmm. remote surgeries and, and things like that, where is that the metaverse? I don't know. I mean, that seems like it could be the metaverse to me. But we, we think of this metaverse as we're strapping on, you know, headsets and goggles and we're walking down the street and we're, well, we're plugging our cortexes in all of the matrix. Right. I, don't, I hope that's not what we evolve <laughs> to become. I think, you know, the metaverse, though, if you think about what Epic Games have done, when you think about what Roblox has done, they've created these 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 worlds in which people spend time and brands can monetize that attention. There are concerts, there are things to do. And I think that that's entertainment. And I think that that is a viable use case for the metaverse. But um, I really don't know about it being anything more than that at this point. At least I'm not interested in that. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Well, Karen, we appreciate your insights so much and thank you for coming by. Thanks, Amaya. This was a lot of fun. I hope it was helpful. How well can any of us trace the technological changes and the transformation of financial services in the 13 years since 2009? I certainly forgot that there was a time when people were asking what Jack Dorsey knew about payments. And frankly, I'm a little sad that I never attached a dash button to my laundry machine. It's easy to take for granted how many different experiments needed to fail in our way here. And perhaps it's because so much has changed that Karen can complain about a quote, sea of sameness in the pitches she gets from fintech companies looking to get press coverage. Now, I'm not much of a believer in the metaverse, so I was drawn to Karen's insight that innovative companies succeed when they combine digital and physical experiences, and when they really change our behaviors, not just the buttons we push or the screens we swipe. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.